Welcome to episode 42 of The Process, Poverty Powerball. episode 42 of the process uh, i am amante martin today we have Derek phillips on the podcast welcome to the podcast Derek. thanks amante i'm happy to be here uh, can you tell the listeners uh, where you're from i'm originally from gary indiana which is about uh, 26 miles outside of chicago and most people know gary as home of the jackson five Oh yeah, Gary, Indiana. I went to uh, Purdue University, so okay, I've I've been to Gary a couple times. So I know the area. Uh, what was it like growing up in Gary for those who aren't familiar with the area? <laughs> well, for those that's not familiar with Gary, I grew up there in the '80s and '90s. It was a tough place to grow up, especially in the '90s, where for a period of about ten years, Gary had the title, the newbiest title of murder capital of the United States. And what that means is based on the size of the city and its population, we have more murders per capita than any other other city in the United States. Let's kind of give you an idea how dangerous it was. It was a lot of gangs, drugs, crack cocaine, um, a lot of violence. So I had to overcome a lot growing up in Gary, but it made me the man who I am today. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, you know, growing up there, um, you know, what was it like for you? What was your experience? So from my experience, uh, looking back on it, it was just, it was a way of life for me. It was, it was a norm. I just had to overcome so much adversity. Starting back, really the biggest struggles were when I was 11 years old, um, I essentially was uh, removed from my mother's custody and went to live with my uncle because my mother was suffering from schizophrenia. And during that time, prior to that, life wasn't comfortable by any means. We was raised by a single mother. Me and my two sisters grew up uh, living on well, off of welfare, but it was kind of semi-stable. But yeah, one, my life certainly got shaken up at age 11 when my mom succumbed to mental illness and was committed to a mental hospital. And I said, going to live with my uncle Tommy. He had to step in and be that father figure for me. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it, it was really end up being the best thing that could have ever happened to me though, because he provided that stability and that, that male positive male role model that I needed in my life at that time. Wow. Well, there had to be a tough time during your life during that time. You know, once you moved in with your uncle, was there, were you able to still build a relationship with your mother or how, how did that work for you? Yeah, it was certainly challenging. I was still able to see my mother regularly, mm-hmm. go visit her in the mental hospital, but like her mind state wasn't stable enough for us really, we were able to hold like a really a normal conversation. It was a really surface level type conversations. So I wouldn't say our relationship were was developed as on a deeper level, but we still had that contact while I was able to see her regularly and at least know that she was she was safe. Are you the oldest or the youngest? I'm the middle middle child, so I have a younger sister and an older sister. My older sister Unique is four years older than me. Wow. And so what role so that dynamic of being a middle child, you know, living with your uncle you know, how did that affect you as far as um, school and, you know, extracurricular and things like that? Right. So prior to going to live with my uncle, I was an average student. So getting C's, passing, but pretty average. Mm-hmm. Even though I had a, a, a high aptitude for learning, but I was just so hyper. <laughs> I could not stay still, could not focus. And I had to find out, well, at least get an official diagnosis until recently that I have ADHD. But yeah, back then, and they would just say, you're, you're hyper, you need, or you get, get spankings, or get, mm-hmm. uh, just just basically try to seclude me, <laughs> just try to get me to focus. Mm-hmm. So school was a struggle. And then by the time I would do with my uncle, um, by that age, I'm at 12, 11, 12, 13 range where puberty and just being exposed to a lot more in terms of exposed to gangs. I was hanging out certainly affiliated with gangs. I started smoking weed pretty early and just getting into a lot of trouble. And I guess in hindsight, I was probably still trying to process what happened with my mother and that that, tra- uh, that traumatizing experience. But yeah, those early years, living with my uncle, I was still getting into a lot of trouble, still wasn't um, getting good, good grades or anything. But it was a turning point over a period of about three months where I was 13, this is my seventh grade year. I had got arrested for doing something stupid. I think we were, a friend and I were throwing snowballs at a police car or something. (laughs) But we're just being mischievous. eh? So the police officer arrested us and I'm sitting in there in the cell. And one of our family friends, who's a police officer, Officer David, he comes in and sees me and it's like, man, Darius, what are you doing? He's being a knucklehead. Like, come with me. So he gets, she takes me home. And on our drive home, he's just telling me about, like, hey, you're, you're better than this. And the, you, you just have so much more potential, but you're going to have to start making better decisions and start hanging out with positive people instead of the knuckleheads and the gang members. So I hear him, but I'm not really listening. And after that experience, two weeks later, I'm on the school bus with gang member friends and we're smoking weed on the school bus. Just stupid. <laughs> and right in front of everybody, smoking a blunt. Like, back then, it wasn't even blunt, it was a joint. We're smoking a joint, <laughs> passing it around, thinking we're cool. And uh, so this was on a Friday. That Monday, I get called into the office and I get expelled from school from that. <laughs> wow. I, don't know, I don't know why I didn't think nobody was going to tell on us. <laughs> so I get expelled from school for two weeks and that was a really... Uh, 
that was a that was really the big turning point in my life, at least starting down that road because my uncle made it pure hell during those two weeks I was home from school. Like, he, he was waking me up five in the morning, had me doing all kind of crazy chores and just like, man, it was miserable. And I realized, like, man, this this ain't the life. <laughs> and he was letting me know, like, hey, if you, if you really want to make your bed hard, you got to lie in it. And if you continue down this road, your life is going to be miserable. So it started that me down the path of realizing, like starting to reevaluate what I was doing. And then the, 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 really the third and final portion of that, that, that sealed the deal was uh, that same year, my seventh grade year, like I said, already being labeled as one of the bad kids. Our school had a program called DARE, which is kind of like scared straight, the show that you see on TV. Mm-hmm. And they, they took a, a group of us to the local Lake County prison, which was a jail. And just that experience of going into the jail and just like as you're walking through the, each door, those big metal sliding door slamming behind you and going into where all the prisoners are at, seeing how they're packed in and on bunk beds and it's just it stinks and there and the prisons are huge. Like I remember one prisoner where he, he grabbed the bar, was like, I better never see you all in here. This guy like six, seven, three hundred pounds. At the time, I'm about five, six, one, <laughs> one twenty. I'm like, man, I wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> I'm be in trouble. So by the end of that visit, uh, and one thing also that that's, that really um, hit home for me that visit was the warden who was really escorting us through the through the whole uh, prison and kind of over the program. He kept repeating how um, black boys are an endangered species and how by our 21st birthday a lot of us are going to end up in in prison or in a cemetery so i had heard those toxic statements before from friends family teachers whatever authority figures but that was the first time i heard it from a white man yeah. and for, for whatever reason kind of really hit home for me like wow this white man's telling me i'm gonna be a statistic just because the color of my skin like i said it was just a combination of all those series of events over those couple of months that really made me reevaluate the direction my life was going the people i was hanging out with and just the decisions I was making. So within, I would say within a couple months from all that happening, I completely did a, a 180. I stopped hanging out with the gang, my gang and friends. I stopped smoking weed. Started getting, went from a C student, C minus student to an AB student. I really involved in sports. And the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so interesting to, to hear your story because it kind of similar to mine, single parent home. I moved a lot. Um, I went to like three different elementary schools and two different cities. And one thing I noticed is that sometimes it's not that we're not smart enough, it's just that you're not stable enough, right? You know, to progress and to do well. Um, but it was good that you, you had that experience to do the 180 because, yeah, we I, I can I can identify our friends who become statistics, you know? yeah, and. And so we're so fragile during those years, right? Um, by our decision making and the things that we do, and we allow in our in our, in our space. But um, what what ended up happening, you know, once you graduated from high school, right? So high school was pretty smooth. Uh, still was it was it was a kind of like a walking a tightrope or a minefield in terms of just avoiding all of the negativity, all of the violence and drugs and, and distractions. Because in that type of environment, it's it's too easy to get get into the wrong thing. It's too easy to be 
in the wrong place at the wrong time. So just in high school alone, I had, um, we had a couple, we had my senior year, we had a student murdered in front of the school, a young man that I knew was gang related. My eighth grade year before I went to high school, I, I went to a homecoming game at the high school I ended up graduating from. And there was another gang shooting, a guy uh, had, was shooting up in the stands on the home side end up killing a girl that was uh, three months pregnant. She was a senior in high school at the time. So it was just a lot of trauma I certainly saw and violence I saw throughout those years. But for the most part, I did a really good job of steering clear of it, being really active in sports. I was track and field, cross country. Those That kept me out of trouble. Um, really focusing on my, my grades, still remained an A-B student. And yeah, just and by eighth grade, I had changed my friends as well. So that all those things played a key role in me making it out of high school with, uh, without any criminal record or life-threatening injuries. And once I graduated high school, two weeks later, I joined the Army. So I was in basic training in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Wow. But before we jump into that, what advice could you give to you know, someone who may be trying to navigate that same terrain, because I'm thinking, you know, at that time, we, at that age, we're so impressionable and like, right. and fragile, you know, and, and, and the decisions that we think that can hurt us can definitely hurt or hurt our futures. Yeah. Uh, what advice could you could you lend to, you know, someone in that in that age range, high school, college, maybe freshman, yeah. that, you know, to steer them in the right direction? Right. Certainly, and. As you mentioned, the decisions can hurt our future. So that's a big part of it. We're realizing that it may seem like all fun and games, but it can have lasting consequences, whether you get seriously injured or you get a criminal record, a felony or something that can follow you the rest of your life. And I know it's kind of hard for your kids if they're teens or young adults to really understand the longevity of bad decisions, but they really have to start thinking about that early on. And as far as how to really navigate in that, that tough environment, uh, just some of the things I said that helped me out in terms of, it starts with the people you associate with, people you, your friends. You have to make good decisions on the people you surround yourself with. Like the old saying goes, birds of a feather, feather flock together. So if you're hanging around gang members or you're hanging around just bad influences, it's going to impact you as a person. It's going to impact the actions and just the situations you find yourself in. So you really have to be conscious of that. I'm a big advocate in uh, kids getting involved in sports. And if you're not athletic, get involved in some type of clubs, anything extracurricular that you can really use your time for something positive. Because if you just got a lot of spare time after school, you're going to find ways to get into trouble. And the, the other thing I will mention is find role models or mentors, someone that you that's going to model just uh, desirable behavior and going to help you build your character and you can see like, hey, this person's responsible. This person is, is um, honest and compassionate. Just things that you want, that you desire. Surround yourself with people that model that behavior so you can see it because I believe you can't be what you can't see. So if you're only hanging around negative people, then that's, that's who you're going to be. But if you're surrounding yourself with positive people, then that, that's who you're going to be. And I know, I know in that environment, especially for me in Gary, it was kids growing up in the inner city. It's, it's a lot more negative models than positive role models. So 
but I always believe that no matter how bad the environment is, there's always someone who's a positive role model, someone's a positive influence. You have to seek those people out. And even if you're like, hey, I, uh, there's no one in this day and age, we're so connected as far as the internet and things like that. Seek out positive uh, just influence whether it's a podcast like the process podcast or my podcast mentor select podcast or reading books or just youtube videos motivational anything you want to feed yourself that's positive that's you know some strategies i would sh- say they should do mm-hmm. yeah that, that is beneficial because we do have access to a lot of things at our fingertips right. these days and yeah, that's no excuse it's, it's really it's really no excuse but it can be hard just navigating that terrain because the impressionable being young and immature. Right. But, you know, transitioning, why, why why, the army? You know, why the military route? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my uncle that raised me, he was he was a pretty stern disciplinarian, but he was still compassionate at the same time. But he, he didn't use physical punishment, but he certainly believed in still in discipline. And he kind of had like that military style of, of disciplining you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And also, ironically, both his sons, because uh, by the time I moved my uncle Tommy, he was 50 years old. He's 20 years old than my mother. So he was 50 years old. His sons were already grown and in the military. He has one that's in the, that retired from the Navy and one retired from the Marines. So it's just ironic that growing up in his house, so I ended up going to the military as well. It just, <laughs> it just, it just prepared us for it. But the biggest influence for me joining the military, but I was pretty good in track and had options to go to. Had a couple offers for D2 school scholarships for track and field, but I graduated in sep- in uh, 2002. And I remember on 9-11, 2001, where I was getting ready for school, watching the news and seeing what was unfolding. And I remember watching that second plane fly into the towers and just witnessing all that, being in a state of shock, but also seeing that those first responders, when everyone else is running away for their own safety, those first responders, the firefighters, paramedics, police officers, they were the ones running towards danger. They were the ones running into those towers, trying to get people out of the building safely. So it was something about that just kind of sparked something in me where it's like, wow, they're doing something. They're doing that because it's bigger than themselves. And I wanted to experience that as well. I didn't want to just be on the sidelines watching. I wanted to be on, on the front lines. Like, hey, mm-hmm. I want to I want to serve my country at that level. So that was the biggest influence. Nine months after that, I was in, the, in basic training. And then I ultimately did my last year. I did deploy to Iraq. Wow. How many deployments did you have? So while serving in the army, I, I did one deployment to Iraq, and then I got out of the military in 2006, and I ended up six months later returning back to Iraq as a civilian contractor. So total, I served three years in Iraq and two years in Afghanistan, but only one of those was as a soldier. The other four was as a, a contractor for the Department of Defense. Wow, so what was that transition like, you know, transitioning from Gary, Indiana, to now you're a soldier in the army and you know basic training and things like that? Uh, for the most part, it was pretty smooth. Um, some things I had to, well, most, some things was kind of a culture shock for me in terms of just more of a, a civilized environment. Uh, I kind of came from a structured household with my uncle, but just more of a civilized environment and being able to can um, control well, realizing that everything wasn't a 
the stakes wasn't life or death. So like growing up in Gary, the stakes was life or death. You get in, you get into an argument with someone that can very easily end up in them shooting you. So that was an adjustment for me going out into more of a, a civilized world where hey, you, it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have arguments with people, and it's not going to end in them shooting you or something that bad. So that was an ironic kind of adjustment for me. Um, but the structure was, was fine. I was good. And then the, the, the physical part of it was, I was already went to really athletic. So that, that came easy. But just military life is, it is an indoctrination process. So it's a totally different world. You're going to be completely engulfed in a military world. And it's just a, just a learning curve. It's just understand, okay, this is how things are done in the military versus how you've been doing things. But overall, it was, it was pretty smooth process process and definitely enjoyable experience. My first uh, duty station was Germany and that was that was just a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> what what was what uh, what job did you have? What MOS? So essentially they call it uh, essentially I did cybersecurity, which is my background, but well that's why I first started doing cybersecurity, but back then they didn't call it cybersecurity. It was called like uh, data encryption or something. Back in the day. <laughs> but yeah, cybersecurity. Wow, wow. So um, transitioning out of the military um, into, you said, a civilian contractor. Yes. Um, what led you um, to where you are now? What what steps did you take to get to where you are now? So I always look at kind of going back where, I don't know if I mentioned, I haven't mentioned it yet, but so I ended up writing a book called Poverty Powerball, Turn Adversity into Your Winning Ticket. Mm-hmm. And that really just captures my mindset coming out of Gary, where I felt that, well, not felt, I knew that there is strength in adversity and there and overcoming adversity and hardships that can really be your secret weapon. So ha- making it out of Gary prepared me to, for the military to be a smooth ride. Like, okay, if I, if I, made out of gear I certainly can make it in the military it kind of goes back to Jay-Z's quote where he says since I made it here I can make it anywhere and that's the mentality I had coming out of Gary so once I transitioned to the military I proved that like that's good then after the military as a contract it was kind of the same mentality like I've I've already been through hell and back so just anything now on the corporate side or uh, um, yeah that's it's, it's not a, a big challenge so that's one of the biggest things I try to um, share with, especially uh, people who have gone through a lot of people who are going through things is really identify, okay, what what's the strength that you gain from going through that adversity? What's the lessons that you learn? Because that's really your winning ticket. That's your secret weapon. And I think a lot of people just don't utilize or they just don't realize that it's there with inside them. They don't, that they have that resilience as a result. And that's certainly been the, the biggest thing that's, uh, contributed to my success because I did have it so hard growing up where now it's I'm just prepared I've been prepared for it and I've been able to excel as a result what was it like you know stepping that taking that leap of faith um until working on your own and and, and kind of entrusting in your own abilities in abilities I would say that's probably the hardest thing I've, I've done to date <laughs> it, it's, it's extremely challenging so the background story with that is I was working for Hewlett Packard and I hadn't worked for them for three years. And in 2018, so yeah, June 2018, my manager calls me to the office 
tells me how great of a job I've been doing and how I qualify for the full 6% bonus, mid-year bonus. Then she's like, okay, that's the good news. But the bad news is we're outsourcing a lot of positions to Ireland and your position is one of the ones impacted. So this will be the last month that you'll be working for the Hewlett Packard. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and of course I was in the state of shock, like, man, like I, did, I had never got laid off before. So I didn't really see that coming. And it was just a lot of different mixed emotions. Like, man, I've vested all this, this time and putting pretty, essentially putting all my eggs in one basket with corporate America. And it was just a reality check that, hey, at any given moment, they could say, hey, we're, your services are no longer needed. So with that reality check, I had already been kind of dibbling and dabbling with entrepreneurship, but not really taking it serious. I just had a lot of ideas, but I didn't really have an incentive to pursue them with any real effort because I, I was in that comfort zone. I was complacent, like, okay, I got a good job, good pay. Uh, I just didn't really have that incentive, but getting laid off certainly <laughs> lit, a, lit a fire under me like, man, it, it's, it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to, and, and it was that point I realized that I wasn't, I would never want to put all my eggs in one basket like that again. I would never want to just rest my fate or my family's fate and future into an employer and hoping it all works out. Just, just realizing that, hey, um, business has changed and it's all about uh, um, pretty much that bottom line. And I, so at that point, that's when I got decided, okay, I'm gonna finally write this book that I had an idea about. I'm gonna launch my podcast. I'm gonna pursue being a motivational speaker. And so I did that essentially focused on that full time for a year where I wasn't even working and just focusing on building my business. Like I said, it was, it was extremely hard. <laughs> Fortunately, I have a loving, supporting wife. She has a good job as well, so that helped um, as far as get us through. But um, it was it was challenging. <laughs> wow. I can only imagine. Because I, I, I feel myself as a creative entrepreneur, and I battle with this all the time. I'm always thinking about you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going through the system or, or the, the course, if you will, to become a PhD candidate. And once, right. I, once I graduate, you know, I'm going to work in academia or in my field um, where the value of my degree is placed on by my employer. You know, my, my employer basically places the value. But right. I also value the skill sets that I have or the skill sets that I've developed over time through my experiences. And it's just like, I trust in this, the, the institution more than I trust in my skill set. So how did you, how did you, how did you move, progress to that? Like, you know what, this is what I have to do. You know what I mean? Right. And, and I trust that I can do it. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to put it in terms of, they're really transitioning from like say trusting in the institution more than your own skill sets. And it kind of goes back to what I said, where I essentially decided, told myself, made a vow that I would never just put all my eggs in one basket again and rest my fate in someone else's hands. Just because, you know, as a family man, just the stakes are so high. And for, and within education, it's probably a little more secure, but still it's just a lot is out of your control when you're resting all your fate in an institution. And I'm not, I'm not against it. I'm just saying like, it's always an opportunity to to work a job, a career, and also build your brand simultaneously. 
like you're doing now. This podcast is building a brand. This is help. This is diversifying and helping and allowing you to express your skill set outside of the, the institution. So that's why I encourage people to do. I don't encourage people to just quit their job or security is definitely a priority. You want to be, you have to pay your bills. You got to live, you got to eat. Definitely. So you have to prioritize. Don't, I wouldn't just abruptly say quit your job for me. I was laid off. So that made it easier. But yeah, you want to, you have to have a security, but at the same time, it's 24 hours in a day. This depends on what, what you want to do with it. And I have made a lot of friends. I have a good example where one of my friends, Dr. Dale Okaradudu, he is full-time doctor but he also has a podcast he does mentor he has a mentorship program he's an author he does summits he, he does so many different things and i asked him like how do you do all that and that was his what he said to me hey Derek, we all have 24 hours <laughs> if, you, if you look at those 24 hours and you all it how you're spending that time it's easy to find time that you can spend investing in further developing your skill set building a brand and building a business while simultaneously um, working a career in a job or pursuing your career. Right. So, so on the same note, but kind of transitioning a little bit, like how did, how, cause like I said, I'm, I'm a married man. My co-host Quay, he's a married man. And you know, how do you have that conversation with, <laughs> with your spouse, you know, with, with, with management? <laughs> man, that is a tough conversation. <laughs> Go ahead and ask that question. <laughs> So, so going back as I'm driving home after getting laid off and like just all these thoughts are going through my head. I'm feeling betrayed. I'm feeling like, man, what happened? <laughs> like, yeah. And amidst all of those thoughts, it's just like, hey, there's never again. There's, you, you have to trust in yourself. And that is easier said than done. But like, hey, you, this is your opportunity. I'm a man of faith and I believe in signs from God. I'm like, this, God is telling you, hey, you've been comfortable. Now it's time to really make things happen. So once I got home to tell my wife, you know, hey, I've been laid off. And her response, she was very supportive. Like, I'm sorry to hear that, babe. Uh, don't worry. Cybersecurity is a high demand career field. You, you'll get a job in no time. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, about that. <laughs> I don't plan on applying for any jobs anytime soon. I'm going to write a book and be a motivational speaker and host a podcast and all that stuff. And yeah, the look <laughs> on our face is priceless. <laughs> I, I can only I, imagine. I'd have been off telling her, hey, I'm trying to go to the NBA or <laughs> hey, I'm, going, I'm about to drop, drop her album. <laughs> so she she was completely puzzled. That caught her off guard. Even though I had been, like I told her, I had been in expressing some ideas about doing that but nothing serious but now I'm telling her hey I'm laid off I'm all in now <laughs> and that, yeah. that caught her off guard but she was reluctantly supportive but I would say over the year and just full disclosure like now I actually do I did go back to work this past June uh, once my daughter was born but I invested probably even more time now on working on my business in addition to working a job than I did when I was just focused on 100 percent uh, during the year I was off work. But during the year that I was focusing on 100% and wasn't working, yeah, we definitely, it was it was challenging. She, we, it, we would go through phases where she was very supportive and then phases where she was having doubts and was like, okay, um, our savings is getting kind of low. Yeah, <laughs> what are we yeah. gonna do? Because that's the biggest thing too, when someone starts a business, is they gotta realize that nine times 10 is not gonna be profitable. No within the immediate future, maybe it takes years to get profitable in some cases. 
So it's a lot of building goes into it, a lot of networking and planting those seeds, making those connections and really refining your process and all of that. So you're not really making money at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so we're definitely watching our, our credit increase and our, our savings decrease. So that, it was stressful. It certainly was stressful. And it was a little easier since, uh, like I said, my daughter wasn't born yet. But once my daughter was born, it was kind of like, okay, I've made a lot of progress over this year towards my business. I've published a book. I've been hosting the podcast. I've made tons of connections and I'm building traction, getting a lot of traction going, but it's still not enough to cover our, our bills. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I am going to go back to work, but I'm going to continue to build on what I've, I've been doing over the past year to make sure I don't lose that momentum. And, how, and, and so I have like a two-part question or two separate questions. But my first question is, you know, how do you identify a job because once you kind of got to gain your footing in, in your own business and then kind of in your own lane how do you find a job that is kind of flexible enough to allow you to do that or you just find your job and kind of work around it i would say more so find your job and work around it um, mm-hmm. i think it'll be certain type of jobs you may want to avoid if you know they're going to be where you're not going to have a lot of flexibility for example like management or something like that but as an employee a non-managerial role you know, not to continue working 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So they're just still, you know, you'll have a set schedule and things like you're not going to be on call. Just, so you wouldn't avoid those type of jobs where you're going to be on call or you're working just a, a, a unpredictable schedule. But like I say, most positions, especially in my line of work, I know, hey, it's 40 hours a week, usually nine to five. That just gives me, and then I uh, schedule my business operations outside of that. And something I wanted to touch on that you mentioned earlier about like in your scenario, we're getting your PhD and you mentioned how with the institution places a, a value on your degree, but, but in, in reality also outside of that, we're building your own brand, that PhD, it, the value is, it's invaluable. So depending on how you're leveraging your own brand and what, what type of services and products and things you're, you're offering. Yeah, that, that PhD holds a lot of weight because it automatically gives you that credibility where people are like, wow, they realize, they may not realize to the extent, they know it's a big deal and they know that they, it, it comes with a lot of respect. So that it's, it's invaluable. You write your ticket on that side of the, the fence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the thing that I struggle with for a while. I still struggle with it, um, mm-hmm. especially as it relates to imposter syndrome. Because oh yeah, I was about to bring it up. That's what we all <laughs> struggle with. <laughs> it, yeah, I, I bet because you know here I am, GED. You know, I graduated undergrad with like a two three GPA, um, mm-hmm. and a mentor of mine at the, at Purdue University. He also went. To, I went to Florida and M University undergrad. Okay, and he gave me a chance, and you know I had to seize the opportunity at Purdue to to kind of show my worth, but right. now it's like the next level. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, here I am. I, I, I kind of related to a JUCO athlete going pro. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. Or someone who never played football in high school, went to JUCO and now they're like in the pros. Yeah. Like you, you, you know you have a skill set, but it's just trusting that you can see it through. Cause you, right. cause you, cause you know that that realm is so uh, prestigious and, and held to a high regard, and you're just trying to see yourself in those yeah. shoes. Uh, what were you gonna say? Right. You say, say something about imposter syndrome. Yeah, I was about to say with imposter syndrome. That's some. Yeah, I realize everyone struggles with that to some extent, regardless of whatever their background is. 
But going back to it being strength in the struggle, strength in adversity, um, you have a, a remarkable story. So think about your story compared to someone who, hey, they're valedictorian in high school, got straight straight A's in college, and whatever went to get, pursue their doctorates. That story's boring. Yeah. <laughs> but your story, you have such a your story has so many dimensions to it that resonates with people. So your story's gonna be so much more inspirational than someone who just they pretty much was squeaky clean the entire time. They didn't have none of those issues. Uh, didn't have to come under that adversity. So just keep in mind, it's so much value there. And it's funny pursuing this career of motivational speaking where I would uh, meet people, uh, this organization I belong to called National Speakers Association. And that's where basically people who want to be professional speakers learn the, learn the business of it. But I would meet people and they would hear my story and they'd be like, man, what, man, I wish I had some of that adversity in my life. I wish I had a story like that. And it's true because that's what resonates with people. People don't, as far as perfection or just um, just ha- having life easy, people don't resonate with that. So it's just, it's just a lot of value there. Well, as far as imposter syndrome, we all deal with it, but the biggest thing about it is the two people, the people that are successful and unsuccessful, the successful people, they act despite that feeling that imposter syndrome. They still act and take action versus the unsuccessful people, they they succumb to it. They say, okay, they, those, those negative voices in the head, they, they listen to them and don't take action. But yeah, as long as you're still taking action despite that, it, it'll last, those voices will get not as loud. <laughs> yeah, but silence it's normal. <laughs> yeah, it's silence, but everyone deals with it. Wow, and, and, so, and so the reason I started the podcast is because at some point I did feel alone in my experiences. And I wanted to start a podcast because I'm thinking like, you know, trust the process that every you're not alone. Right. And everyone is going through this. And so by having a podcast and everyone that comes on, it's just evidence of that story and that process that everyone is going through. And so yep. my next question is, you know, through your experience of kind of stepping out on faith and, and, and trusting in your experiences, you know, and having to navigate, not only trusting in your abilities, but also you have a wife. And so leaning on your partner, uh, what did you learn about yourself during that process? Um, um, and, you know, like, what did you learn about your experience and what did you learn about yourself? I certainly learned a lot. I would say, um, my, my communication skills got a lot better because as you mentioned, once you have a partner, you can't just make those decisions, especially it's going to affect your, your family by yourself. So you have to communicate your ideas, your vision, and then also realizing that, hey, when you have these grand dreams, your vision, uh, your partner not not going to automatically be able to see that. People are not going to be able to see that because it's yours. It's your dreams. So you really have to try to communicate it in terms where they understand or at least they're a, a level where they're comfortable enough to continue supporting it. Mm-hmm. So that part of my definite communication skills had to get a lot better. My, I had to stop taking things personal in terms, especially as an entrepreneur, you, you have to not take things personal. You're gonna get a lot of rejection, a lot of no's, a lot of people just not supporting you for whatever reason, but you can't take it personal because that's gonna just even, that's just going to be counterproductive and it's going to make you feel like even more of an imposter. <laughs> so just having faith in your abilities and just knowing like, hey, I'm going to see this through. This is a marathon. And really, yeah, really setting those proper expectations 
because everyone wants to be overnight success and just things happen once they want on their own terms, but it, it doesn't work that way. So really for me setting proper expectations and, and committing to being in this for the long haul, then that, that's helped me a lot. Other than that, it's also um, just more things I learned about myself is just really uh, appreciating what my unique gifts are. Prior to becoming an entrepreneur, I was kind of taking it for granted. But as an entrepreneur, if you pursue anything that's just extraordinary, it is important to identify, okay, what are you really good at? What are your gifts? And just trying to focus on those. And like whether and if it's things you need to outsource or lean on other people because it's their strength and not and one of your weaknesses, then doing that, being more collaborative versus trying to do everything myself and really spreading myself too thin. So I've really learned to focus on what I'm really good at and outsourcing what I'm not or teaming up with somebody who has a strength that I don't have. Yeah, that's probably one another one of the biggest lessons I learned. So also through your experience, um, what what does trust in the process mean to you? Or what have what has that come to mean to you? So I would say so trust in the process for me would mean that regardless of the results, you're going to trust the process. If you are confident that, hey, you have a solid process and uh, it has worked for other people, then being confident it's going to work for you as well. But you just never know when. And you just have to trust that process. And, and based on the results, you can refine it in terms of continue to hone it, making it better, but not just uh, aborting that process. Because if I'm a big believer of not recreating a wheel and modeling success, because success leaves foot tracks, leaves clues. So follow once you commit to a process, stick it out. Don't um, abort that process just because Hey, after a week of doing X, Y, Z, it didn't, you feel like it didn't work and get the results that you desire. Cause I think that's a mistake because if you really peel back the, pull back the curtains on successful people, Hey, they, they failed a lot before they became successful, but they trusted the process. They kept at it. They kept at it. They believed in themselves, even though they had imposter syndrome, even though they had doubts and it wasn't supporting them, they kept to the, kept to the script. <laughs> and eventually, like I said, just realizing it's a marathon. If you look at it like, hey, I'm all in, I'm committed, no matter what, then I think you can't help but be successful or accomplish whatever goal you set. I agree. And a good example of that is for me, I, I just started doing what they call it extreme sports. And I ran my first marathon in February. Wow. And the the reason I decided to run a marathon, I probably hadn't run more than a couple miles, three miles in more than 10 years. I wasn't really a runner anymore. I didn't even enjoy it, especially long distance. But my wife was pregnant at the time. And I was like, hey, I want to do something that, just something that pushes me outside my comfort zone, something that would be kind of, uh, just kind of show what it is to be a parent. As far as a marathon, it is a marathon being a parent. I'm sure you being a parent can relate to that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I need to do something that's really, that's really tough. And and when I did, I set that goal. I'm like, okay, I need to attach this goal to something that's so emotional and important to me that I can't quit. I have to cross that finish line. I'm like, okay, when I'm going to dedicate the race to my daughter who wasn't born yet. And that finisher medal is going to be the first gift that I give my daughter. 
So I trained for it, followed the the process that people who, before me who ran marathons and, and finished. So I followed the training plan and on race day, I was doing great up until mile, about mile 20. <laughs> then I, I hit what they call the wall because the marathon is 26.2 miles. So once I hit that wall, that means I had nothing left. I was exhausted, everything hurting and just had nothing left. I still got 6.2 miles to go. That's when you start thinking about, okay, why are you doing what you're doing? So for me, it was my daughter. Like This is dedicated to her. So quitting wasn't an option. I knew I had to get across that finish line one way or another because that medal was hers. I already claimed it. <laughs> I already visualized giving it to her. So that's what got me through. That was the last 6.2 miles. And I think with goal setting and doing anything extraordinary, you, you have to, it has to be something emotional for you. You have to make that connection, something that's just so great something that's so important that you, you can't quit. You can't give up. You're not gonna abandon the process when you fail or feel that, hey, you're just not enough. So that's, for me, I think that kind of illustrates it. Well, that's powerful. And, and I think that it's also powerful in that claiming it, you know, right. before it's even yours. You have to. <laughs> and seeing it through, you know, that, that speaking it to existence that, that's powerful. <laughs> yeah, that, that is so important because as you do that, you're internalizing it. You're visualizing, okay, what what is your incentive for doing whatever you're pursuing? And you have to, okay, you have to really internalize and feel the emotions that you're going to feel once you accomplish that goal. So for me, before crossing that finish line, I had to internalize, okay, what is it going to feel like seeing my wife at the finish line and being able to give her a big hug and kiss and say I did it and then what's it going to feel like being able to give my daughter this medal and tell her what it represents that's going to feel amazing yeah. <laughs> but what does, what does it feel like now at mile 20 it feels <laughs> like death <laughs> but <laughs> I desire that amazing feeling the outcome the end result so much that anything I'm going through prior to that it, it pales in comparison do you have any lasting words that you want to leave with the listeners yeah absolutely I would say and just to wrap up everything I mentioned, for those who are uh, just going through some tough times or especially for youth growing up in just really bad situations, tough environments, I know it may seem like you just can't see a bright future, but it's, it's so important to compare and contrast. It's so important to see the situation that you're in, assess it, but also look forward and say, okay, this is in the future, I'm gonna be here. This is what I desire. Really paint the picture of where you want to be. And, and going back to that, internalize it, see pictures of it, watch videos, watch how other people are experiencing that life that you wanna uh, achieve and you wanna live. And then also then pull back the curtain, see how did they get there, then follow their process. But don't believe that, okay, I'm at point A, I'm stuck here. No, you, you always have a choice. I, I don't believe that we're stuck. I believe that it doesn't matter where you start, it matters where you finish. So just always keep that in mind and really realize that no one can control your dreams or limit your dreams, your imagination. So that is the, the fuel for success. That's where it starts, being able to dream uh, bigger than what you believe is possible. I agree. Dream big. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't cost you anything. Dream big. It's going to fuel you. 
right? Right, set that expectation high. Um, so where could the listeners find you if they want to connect, buy your book, and, um, and listen to your podcast? Definitely. So my book is available on Amazon. Again, it's called Poverty Powerball. Turn adversity into your winning ticket. My website, that's a good place to connect with me, uh, is derichphillips.com and derich spelled D-E-R-R-I-C-H, Phillips with two L's. Also, you can uh, access my podcast on derichphillips.com as well. It's called the Mentor Select Podcast. I release new episodes every Wednesday and it's available on iTunes, Spotify, all those platforms as well. But certainly reach out to me, email me, I'll, I'll respond back to you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Monte. It's been a pleasure. This concludes episode 42 of The Process. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And to like us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you. They're chanting, trust the process. (laughs) Trust the process. Trust the process. I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and like what I want to be and how I want to be remembered. Like that was my thing. Right? You know, oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people. Being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through. and not to only broadcast these things, but for it to inspire change.